This podcast was made on the unceded lands of the Wongul, Bidjigul and Larrakia peoples. We wish to acknowledge the unbroken sovereignty that holds these lands and the ongoing struggles for justice led by First Nations peoples across the world. We pay our respects to Elders past and present. This always was, and always will be, Aboriginal land. Please be advised that the following program contains references to Aboriginal people who are deceased. What is abolition and what is it a call for? Abolition is not just about getting rid of cages. It's about actually undoing the parts of society that continue to feed on and maintain the oppression of masses of my people through punishment, violence and control. Because the prison industrial complex isn't an isolated system. So abolition must be a broad strategy. And so I'm interested in building models today that develop and represent how we want to live in the future. I see abolition as a practical organising tool and a long-term goal and a way of living. In recent years and against the backdrop of the COVID-19 pandemic, protesters around the world took to the streets to call for the abolition of the police and prisons. No justice! In May 2020, the murder of George Floyd by a police officer in Minneapolis, Minnesota, saw riots and protests sweep across the United States. In the US that year, the police would kill over 1,000 people, with black people disproportionately targeted. Floyd's killing was a tipping point that ignited a wave of uprisings. Thousands marched in the streets, police precincts were burnt to the ground, and networks for communal resourcing were established. The uprisings took aim at the systems and infrastructures central to the perpetuation of racialized violence and inequality, private property, police, prisons. As the uprisings unfolded, the calls for abolition grew louder. In the settler colony of Australia, where blackness and indigeneity come together, mass protests against the violence of racialized policing and incarceration also took place in 2020. These demonstrations were both expressions of solidarity with the US uprisings and renewed calls to stop Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander deaths in custody. A history of First Nations-led abolitionist organising can be traced all the way back to the inception of the penal colony, whose establishment required the invasion and occupation of sovereign lands. More recently, Abolitionist movements have sought to intervene in the killing of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people by the state. In the three decades since the Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody handed down its report in 1991, there have been at least 500 more deaths. The death of Dungudi man David Dungate Jr. while he was incarcerated in Sydney's Long Bay Correctional Complex on the 29th of December 2015 forges a direct link with the murder of George Floyd. Dungay Jr. was violently restrained by prison guards who stormed his cell and, like Floyd, was captured on video repeating, I can't breathe, over and over again. His plea, too, fell on ears that refused to listen. The killing of First Nations people by the state is a recurring event in the Australian colony and the protest actions that took place saw thousands of people mobilise around the call to abolish the police and carceral systems. Black Lives Matter! 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 Black Lives Matter!
Earlier in this program, you heard the Gunditjmara woman Tabitha Lane, who has lived experience of incarceration and is a committed abolitionist, answer our question, what is abolition and what is it a call for? Her response was that abolition is not simply about getting rid of the police and prisons, but about building different futures in the here and now. Abolition is a way of living and a means to manifest social worlds in which the police and prisons and the violence of colonialism that they perpetuate are no longer central to how we imagine justice. Lean reminds us that here, in the colony of Australia, abolition cannot be separated from decolonisation. Abolition might sound like a radical idea, but my people have been working towards it for decades. In fact, we've been fighting against the enslaving and incarcerating of our people for 233 years individual and community safety cannot come without freedom and justice because who we are and what we are comes from the alchemy of our struggles. If we dismantle systems that cage and punish, we can explicitly fight genocide and dispossession and create a world focused on radical reciprocity and accountability. So if you're banging on about decolonization in your workplaces, pedagogies, classrooms, policies, organizations and articles, and you are not an abolitionist, well then you are not decolonizing. My name is Andrew Brooks and I'm a researcher at the University of New South Wales in the School of Arts and Media. Alongside Liam Greeley and Astrid LaRange, I'm a co-facilitator of the research network called Infrastructural Inequalities. We examine the unjust distribution of resources, amenities and opportunities that shape our society and how we might intervene in the reproduction of inequality. Over the last few years, we have looked at policing and prisons as infrastructures of containment and control. We've talked to people with lived experience of the prison system who advocate for its dismantling, as well as activists and other researchers. We've tried to understand the economic and political conditions in which policing and prisons come to be presented as a solution to the erosion of infrastructures necessary for living. Governments have intensified policing in their management of the COVID-19 health crisis and brought its structural biases into wider view. In Australia, a state of emergency was declared in Victoria as COVID-19 cases steadily climbed, with police and public safety officers enforcing state government-mandated lockdown restrictions. From the 17th of March to the 24th of August in 2020, Victorian police issued 19,324 COVID-related fines, totalling more than $27.8 in projected revenue. A Guardian analysis of data obtained by Redfern Legal Centre revealed an incredible imbalance in the deployment of police and the distribution of fines across New South Wales during the Delta wave in 2021. The uneven policing of the pandemic accentuated race and class lines in New South Wales, with suburbs of Western Sydney subjected to tougher lockdown measures and increased police presence, and small regional towns with high Indigenous populations subject to disproportionate numbers of COVID-related fines. But the pandemic has merely allowed the expansion of a form of governance in which the police and prisons are presented as necessary to the management of social and economic crises. What would it mean to build a world where such responses no longer make sense? What would it mean to abolish police and prisons? This program explores what abolition is and what it looks like as a practice. You'll hear from activists and scholars who advocate for abolition, from people with first-hand experience of the prison system, and why they all want to make abolition a common-sense goal. 
in the morning, you're woken up by uh, a loud voice at 7.30 and then you're told to muster up. You have to wear the uniform every day. You're told where to stand. You're told what to eat. You're told everything about your day. You're told whether or not your visit will go ahead. You have no control over anything. It's pretty crap. That was Renee Rocket Bretherton, who has Noongar heritage and was raised by Waka Waka family on Bribey Island in Queensland, describing daily life while incarcerated in Sector 4 at Darwin Correctional Centre in Northern Australia. It's just about control, corrections controlling you and dehumanising you, like all day, over and over, dehumanising you in different ways, shapes and forms. It could be anything from, you know, telling you your visit's not turning up because you're talking or something, you know, just... Just being corrections, really. Her experience of prison is a familiar one. In Australia, 33% of incarcerated women are Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander, while in the Northern Territory, this proportion is about 84%. Increasingly punitive sentencing for non-violent offences, mandatory sentencing and more stringent bail laws have unfairly impacted women, and women often arrive at prison having disproportionately experienced poverty, insecure housing, domestic violence, and childhood trauma. Call it punishment, warehousing, hyper-incarceration, or the creation of a delinquent class, the prison is a violent institution that compounds prior disadvantage. It is, as Rocket tells us, a dehumanising experience. I ended up getting put into a red shirt. A red shirt is high security. Um, In the last three months of my sentence, I was put into a red shirt because my mum gave me a lolly at a visit and I ate it. So, yeah, they felt that was good enough to put me in a red shirt. While inside, Rocket was a co-creator of the Bird's Eye View podcast. Bird's Eye View provides intimate access to the women at Darwin Correctional Centre, their experiences of incarceration, the events that brought them there, the humour and camaraderie that allows them to survive, and their aspirations upon release. Here's an excerpt featuring Tace. Holt's Horoscopes. With your friendly prison psycho, psychic. Gotta get that right, don't I? Capricorn. You're in a great mood and you're raring to go at just about anything. And you realise you're in jail. Your physical energy is high at the muster call because you know there is a soggy sandwich with your name on it. Don't give up. You might want to take a short trip to the office and back. Embark on a new course. Instead of going left and all the way around, go right. The sky's the limit. Also, the fence is your limit. And no running. Tuck your shirt in. And that was another horoscope from your psycho, psychic. Rocket is now outside, advocating for incarcerated and formerly incarcerated women in the Northern Territory. Her account of the prison as a site of violence resonates with others with lived experience of incarceration. Lean puts it like this. When I went to prison, I thought it was the worst day of my life. In fact, I thought it was the end of my life. I mean, going to prison is like descending into the depths of hell. Every person in a blue uniform is like a foot soldier of the devil himself. 
And in some ways going to prison was the end of my life, that life, because walking through those prison gates forever altered my dialogical relationship with the state and frankly, with the broader community. Add to that, I was torn away from my children, my family, and I was taken into Adelaide Women's Prison to sit in a cage. I cried for the entire first 10 months, silently in my cell and silently in the showers because God forbid you showed any weakness to anyone in that place or any sign of mental distress because you'd be thrown in a hard cell in solitary. For those long 10 months, I barely left my cell only to venture out occasionally to play a game of cards with someone who might have smiled back at you when you glanced at them. I mourned my life, my kids, my liberty, and I was scared. Rather than delivering some kind of rehabilitation, the prison is a place that compounds disadvantage and reproduces violence. And as Lean tells us, once you find yourself in the system, it's hard to break free from it. I am a criminalised black woman, having spent two years in prison an accumulated two years on home detention and I'm still tethered to the system on parole. I've made mistakes in my past and some of them were despicable. My face was splashed across the TV and newspapers and my life became a magazine anyone could come through. And the reason I'm telling you this is not to offer myself up for your judgement, because I am absolutely not doing that. The openness with which Lean talks about her experience of incarceration comes from an unwavering commitment to communicate the destructiveness of the prison system in order that it might be dismantled forever. She explains that the effects of criminalisation and incarceration last well beyond the prison sentence. Criminality is determined both preemptively through the reproduction of racism and inequality and perpetually in the exclusion of formerly incarcerated people from social and economic infrastructures. People say, do the crime, do the time, but the time never ends. There are all these kind of secondary layers of punishment and invisible punishment that kind of no one cares about and no one wants to hear about. I'm still viewed by society and the system as an offender. I kind of, I struggle with this idea of being permanently relegated to a subclass of human existence. I'm always going to be an ex-prisoner, an ex-con, an ex-offender, as if the offence was the point of radical departure in my life. So I'm going to be forever under the microscope, which might have always happened as a black woman anyway in the colony. You know, we, we're always under the microscope, but even more so now. And I sometimes wonder when I get to be just an ordinary citizen, because your criminal record stands for your life. And right now in this country, Formerly incarcerated people are absolutely second-class citizens. We are locked out of so many markets once you've got a criminal record. You're locked out of the housing market. You're locked out of economic markets. You're locked out of job markets. It's like, where do you go from here? The thing about having a record is that we can't complain. We can't get angry. We have to remain silent, contrite and quiet. We can't make waves. We can't fight back. We can't even mutter the words, this isn't fair, you're victimising me. And that's because the system is stacked against us and it's stacked unfairly against black blackfellas. And that is deliberate. It doesn't matter how good I am, how reformed I am, how much effort I put in, how many times I reinvent myself, I will always be a criminal. One of the country's most well-known abolitionists is Debbie Kilroy, who from the age of 13 spent over two decades in and out of children's and women's prisons. After her release in 1992, Kilroy founded Sisters Inside to advocate for the abolition of prisons and the rights of incarcerated and formerly incarcerated women and girls. Prisons have become the default response for 
land rights, homelessness, mental illness, drug and alcohol, um, poverty. The call for abolition rejects this idea that the prison is a solution to the erosion of public and social infrastructure. Abolition is a refusal to accept perpetual punishment as the only response for dealing with harm. And for Lane, Kilroy and Bretherton, the experience of prison and the way it structures life beyond the term of the sentence has led them to an unwavering commitment to fight to dismantle the carceral system and the violence it perpetuates. The violence that I've experienced, the violence that Tabitha's experienced, the violence that all the women that I know that are in prison today experience and tomorrow and the next day, that is why we are abolitionists. We must do everything we possibly can to decarcerate. And decarcerate is the journey, abolition is the destiny. The injunction to abolish the police is, for Lean, a matter of life and death. The 500 First Nations deaths in custody since the Royal Commission are a reminder of the racial logics of the criminal justice system and of the stakes of abolition. Our people are being killed by this system, whether it's behind bars, in the backs of correctional services vans like Brother Bella Morrison, in police cells like Miss Do, in the streets like too many of our kids, or in our bedrooms like Brother Kumajay Walker. We are killed. We do not die in custody. We are killed. We are killed by the state. We are systematically broken down to a six-digit number. I know because I am 177057. I am one of this country's disposable people and every single week I struggle to survive a system designed to kill, dehumanise and eradicate my kind. And this is why abolition is the only common sense option for me. This is why I argue that abolition might be the only thing that breathes life back into my communities and into the lungs of my people. Dr Amanda Porter, a Bringer Ewan woman and senior fellow at Melbourne Law School, puts policing and incarceration in the context of colonisation and racism. Australia is a nation that is founded on racist violence, settler colonial violence and genocide. The purpose of invasion was to establish a penal colony as a way of solving Britain's crime problems. It's my contention that Australia's never really got over this addiction to police and to prison industries. The history of of policing of borders in this nation has its foundations in genocide and land theft and racist violence. And I say racist violence because it's important for people to realise that the history of policing in this country is very different depending on whether you're a civilian or a settler or whether you're located outside of the colonial frontier. Dr Porter's claim resonates with recent findings by Lorena Allen and Nick Evershed in The Guardian concerning colonial frontier massacres from 1788 to 1930. Analyzing data produced from an eight-year-long research project that involved digitally mapping colonial frontier massacres, Allen and Evershed found that around half of all massacres of Aboriginal people were carried out by police and other government forces. Many others were perpetrated by settlers acting with tacit approval of the state. The historian Patrick Wolfe famously said that invasion is a structure, not an event, meaning that settler colonialism is a system that must make and remake itself continuously, carrying the past into the present. To foreground colonialism in discussions of policing is to draw attention to the continuity between historical racial violence and the situation today. Dr Porter tells us. It is vital to understand detention, 
incarceration and other forms of custody as central to colonialism in order for us to better understand these systems, to fight against them and to build better societies with Indigenous sovereignty as foundation. While there is growing awareness and support for the abolition movement, there is a tendency in mainstream media to reproduce carceral logics in reports on police, prisons, and the legal infrastructures that connect them. This happens through the use of passive language to describe police violence, the reliance on state departments for information and fact-checking, the fixation on an innocent guilty binary, and the under and false reporting on anti-carceral activism. We spoke to the Gomorrah legal researcher and poet Alison Whitaker about the role of the media and the way reportage can naturalise First Nations deaths in custody. Mainstream media play a really central role in the law and order politics across this continent that actually underscores a lot of the legitimacy of prisons, as well as, I guess, kind of testing with mainstream publics degrees of exerting carceral control and an expanding carceral net over First Nations people in particular. So one really critical example of this was during the COVID-19 pandemic, which obviously is still ongoing, we were quite concerned about the impact that COVID-19 especially was going to have in prisons. The response from corrections across the continent, and especially here in New South Wales, was actually to isolate prisoners from their usual support networks that come from outside of prisons, like their family, support services. So Deadly Corrections, which is just an incredible organisation here in Sydney that is driven by community expertise and lived experience, did a survey that suggested about 100% of the people they spoke to who were outside had really deep and grave concerns for the well-being of their loved ones inside. But that wasn't a concern that we were seeing being reflected in media, again, because of that kind of safeguarding of legitimacy. What we did see, the stories coming in through media, were sources principally from the state, especially from corrective services, press releases, from official sources and often from the ministry that were really preoccupied with this security discourse that um, was about keeping people quite far away from these support networks and isolating prisoners inside. This was happening while there was a really concerted effort from the community especially led by First Nations people who had been inside or who had lost loved ones inside previously, to get people out. But there was very limited reporting on the conditions that people were living in inside. While it can be difficult for journalists to access incarcerated people, the activists and scholars we spoke to were critical of the mainstream media's tendency to reproduce state discourse and their failure to report on resistance to the carceral system. Dr. Porter elaborates on the frustrating lack of media coverage granted to abolitionist activists. I wanted to, again, just draw out that complicity of the Australian media here. I was working with Deb at the time and Sisters Inside to lobby that the women's section of this new Clarence Correctional Centre mega prison not be built. 
there was a huge strategy. It was really hard to get media interest in this particular story. We were knocked back by nearly every Australian corporate media outlet. We were even knocked back by The Conversation, which is meant to be an academic publication. The complicity of media outlets in reproducing a law and order mandate was stark in the reportage surrounding the recent acquittal of Zachary Rolfe, a Northern Territory police officer who shot and killed Walpuri man Kumanjai Walker in 2019. News Corp's The Australian published a series of articles dedicated to coverage of the Rolfe trial with the following headlines. Private schoolboy Zachary Rolfe fell in love with policing before being charged with murder over death of Kumanjai Walker. I'm no racist. Zach Rolfe speaks in exclusive documentary. Bashing, biting, choking, the domestic violence horror Kumanjai Walker perpetrated on his girlfriend before being shot by cop Zachary Rolfe. The final headline subsumes Walker's killing by the policeman into the newspaper's portrait of his criminality. While much reporting has also covered the Walpuri community's loss and their subsequent calls for a blanket ban on guns in remote communities, Indigenous death and suffering is too often naturalised in reporting on state violence. In contrast, First Nations media organisations such as Indigenous X and NITV provide journalistic models that question and critique carceral systems. A necessary first step in changing the discourse on policing and prisons is for media organisations to talk with those who have direct experience of incarceration. As to what the future of abolitionist organising is, I think that is going to be led by people who are inside and people who have experience of being inside prisons. Confronted with the demand to abolish the police and prisons, people often ask how will we be kept safe from harm in a world without law enforcement? Abolitionists challenge us to ask a different question. Why is policing and imprisonment presented as the logical solution to the challenge of providing people with the resources necessary for living? Abolition moves beyond calls to simply reform prisons and policing positing that an end to structural racism and state violence requires upending the political, economic and social conditions that produce these things. Put more directly, abolition is a form of revolutionary struggle. A crucial part of the revolutionary agenda of abolition is to intervene in the reproduction of existing inequalities and to build material infrastructures and networks of care that support people's needs before they find themselves in precarious situations. Abolition is a political vision, and I think it's a political vision of liberation, obviously with the goal of eliminating prisons, policing and surveillance. It's also an opportunity. It's an opportunity to imagine a future free of punishment, imprisonment and exile. And I see abolition as being both a demolition project and a building project, and I think that's something that we're trying to get out there much more, that this 
of course, is about dismantling policies, practices and institutions that make people disposable. You know, I kind of want to challenge that ubiquitous belief that there are throwaway people. But then on the other hand, we want to bring together communities to develop revolutionary and transformative community-based responses to violence and safety issues rather than relying on systems that reinforce and perpetuate violence. And from my perspective, the strength of abolition is that it's anti-capitalist, anti-racist, it's feminist, it's internationalist, it's intersectional, it's pro-cooperation. Lean's articulation of abolition resonates with that of prison abolitionist and scholar Ruth Wilson Gilmore. For Gilmore, one of the key questions driving abolition is, What are the conditions under which it is more likely that people will resort to using violence and harm to solve problems? This pivot from criminal acts to the conditions that produce criminalisation is common in abolitionist discourse, which is concerned with how we might build different futures in the here and now. As Lean tells us, abolitionists insist that we can develop transformative community-based responses to violence and harm. Redirecting state funding from police and prisons toward infrastructures and resources such as housing, health, education and community justice is one way to begin. Gilmore describes the erosion of welfare programs and the dismantling of public services as organised abandonment and argues that this has historically gone hand in hand with the expansion of policing and incarceration. For Porter, the expansion of policing budgets and the construction of new prisons is a key impediment to abolitionist organising. We've seen, even in recent times, record budgets that have been given for corrections and for police. In spite of austerity and defunding of so many essential services, we've seen record budgets time and time again for policing, for corrections, and I should add, for prisons offshore. In the 2021-22 state budget, the New South Wales government announced $4.7 billion in funding for the New South Wales Police Force, including a record capital expenditure of $389 million. The budget includes $41.5 million for an additional 250 police officers, which is part of a $583 million commitment by the New South Wales government to recruit an additional 1,500 police over the next four years. Two years ago, the state of New South Wales announced the biggest contract that's ever been awarded in Australian history. It awarded a $2.3 billion contract to Serco for the public-private partnership, um, also known as the Clarence Correctional Centre Mega Prison, which is a 1,700-bed facility which has been constructed illegally on the sovereign country of Bundjalung, Gumbangir and Yeagle peoples. And in addition to this mega prison, we've also seen the expansion of Silverwater Prison in Sydney, the establishment of a new women's prison in Berkshire Park, and proposals for a new jail in Parramatta, as well as proposals for the extension of the Dame Phyllis Prison here in the state of Victoria, among so many others. That name, Serco, um, will probably sound familiar. That's the British company that's renowned for profiteering off government's detention and torture of Aboriginal people and refugees. In addition to holding that contract, 
with the Clarence Correctional Centre mega prison. Serco also has 11 of the 25 contracts with immigration prisons, and that is followed by Wilson, the Paladin Group, and G4S, who many of you may remember as the company which killed the Aboriginal elder Mr Ward in 2008 in horrific circumstances. Fighting the expansion of policing and prisons is crucial for abolitionists who seek to shift resources at a massive scale from the state's violent and repressive institutions into infrastructures that support and sustain life. But prison reform is not the destination. The destination is abolition, and abolition requires the construction of new systems of value and structures of support that provide for people rather than removing them from society. Gilmore offers a simple guiding principle for abolitionist thought and action. Where life is precious, life is precious. Lean agrees. Abolition is rooted in collective care and values of mutual aid, and there's huge strength in that. Such forms of collective care and mutual aid can be found in the community response to the lockdown of the Flemington and North Melbourne public housing towers during the early months of the COVID pandemic in July 2020. The hard lockdown of the public housing towers by the Victorian state government meant that roughly 3,000 people were forbidden from leaving their homes for any reason, while owner-occupiers and renters in the same neighbourhood were subject to less stringent restrictions, allowed to leave home for food, exercise, work or education, and medical or caring responsibilities. This uneven deployment of state power produced a media spectacle in which the policing of largely low socioeconomic and migrant public housing residents was posited as decisive government action. Community organisations and mutual aid networks, both incorporated and informal, responded immediately to the discriminatory policing of the public housing towers. Food, baby formula, nappies, sanitary products, and other essential items that were suddenly inaccessible to residents were crowdsourced and delivered, showing us that collective approaches to providing for one another are not only possible, but already exist. Let's hear again from Lean. Abolition is a verb, right? So we're doers. We're doing two-pronged work, tearing down and dismantling systems while building up systems. So I like this idea of tearing down systems that suck the life out of us, but building up systems that breathe the life back into mm-hmm. us. I think it's it's a journey. I don't think abolition is a destination we're going to arrive at. I think it's constantly being made. We cannot say exactly what a world without police and prisons looks like, but abolitionists insist that such a world must be built. We discover what the world looks like by building it, And while there are different takes on what such work requires, abolitionists agree that reform is ultimately not the answer. Let's hear again from Kilroy. We can never reform the police. We can never reform prisons. We can never reform courts. The only way that we can dismantle is to burn them down and start again from the ashes with love, with care, with respect, with dignity, with acknowledgement of the rightful custodians of this country. Kilroy reminds us that such a project requires broad coalitions and sustained pressure. It requires that we question the naturalisation of police and prisons, that we question the naturalisation of inequality. It is a war out here on the ground. 
It is a war not only to stop the violence of the state, but also to challenge those individuals that are part of that violence of the state and believe that they aren't. If you are engaged in it, if you are employed in it, you are part of the problem. The only way that we can burn it down, dismantle it, is if everybody walks away from the violent structures, from the violence of policing, the violence of prisons, the violence of court, and not enter the doors again. It will collapse in on itself, and then we can rebuild. To start again is to ask how we might create a world in which all of our needs are met. It is to ask how we collectively develop the power whereby those with very few resources get what they need. It is to build infrastructures that support life rather than extinguish it. This requires an approach to both abolition and infrastructure that is, as Ruth Wilson Gilmore puts it, green, red and international. Gilmore tells us, abolition has to be green. It has to take seriously the problem of environmental harm, environmental racism and environmental degradation. To be green, it has to be red. It has to figure out ways to generalise the resources needed for well-being for the most vulnerable people in our community, which then will extend to all people. And to do that, to be green and red, it has to be international. It has to stretch across borders so that we can consolidate our strength, our experience and our vision for a better world. We began this program by asking, what is abolition a call for? Abolition is not simply a call for the dismantling of prisons and the police, but also an invitation to build a different future, one that relies upon our collective power and that builds infrastructures that support life. To finish, we'll leave you with the words of Tabitha Lane. If you want to breathe life back into people, into communities, into this world, if you want to prioritise healing over harm, abundance over scarcity, love over hate, life over death, then roll your sleeves up and get to work. This program was made by Andrew Brooks, Liam Greeley and Astrid LaRange. You heard from Tabitha Lane, Renee Rocket-Bretherton, Debbie Kilroy, Dr Amanda Porter and Alison Whitaker. It was edited and mixed by Andrew Brooks. Original music was by Motion and Tay. Writing and other resources on abolition, including by our guests, are available at infrastructuralinequalities.net. Mm-hmm.